Thanks for standing. The Holy Scriptures today is from Mark 12, 28 to 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifice, sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right, good morning, everybody. Good morning, you. My name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors and elders here. And I want to start with this question. It's rhetorical. You don't have to answer, but hopefully you can think about it. If you had to boil the entire Bible down to a sentence or two, what would you say? What would you say? The Bible, if you don't know, is like a huge library of books. It's like 66 individual works of literature that ranges from historical accounts to theological treatises to poetry to personal letters. Sometimes all those things kind of melded together, jammed together. It, cont- it claims, the Bible claims, to cover truthfully lots of things. The story of a family turned nation, turns transnational kingdom of God movement through whom a very real God works in the world. It includes accounts of both the beginning and the end of the universe as we know it. It includes descriptions of the identity, nature, character, words, and actions of the one true God of all existence. It includes a vision for a good, healthy, satisfied, God-pleasing life. Even the meaning of life itself, it claims to contain. And, and it includes as its centerpiece, and the center point of its story. Theological biographies of Jesus of Nazareth, like the one we're reading right now, Gospel according to Mark, who who many came to believe was the long-awaited Messiah of the Jewish people and who many came to believe was the eternal Son of God in human flesh. Who many came to believe is the one in whom everything else in the scriptures found its purpose and fulfillment. So the Bible's big. The Bible is big in terms of how much history it spans, uh, in terms of its diversity of literature, in terms of the complicated subject matter and relationships between the parts, in terms of the claims it asks you to accept and believe, and of course, in terms of the word and page count itself. It's a big book. It's a big book. So I say it again. If you take all that, all that complicated stuff, and you had to boil it down to a sentence or two, what would you say? 
Well, Jesus' teaching in this passage, you may, you may have a hint that this is where this is going, he is going to supply us with one very good answer to that question. Jesus is going to give us not only the dead center heart of the Bible, but of Christianity itself. And so if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, and I know a lot of you in this room, I know you have been walking with Jesus for a long time, um, and you need a clarifying, reinvigorating sort of refresher about what is the heart of what we believe, then today is for you. Or if you're just here exploring Jesus and Christianity, and I know a couple of you in this room, that's you, quite, quite specifically. You're just exploring this. What is this? And you want a simple, clear-eyed summary of what following Jesus is all about, then today is for you. So it's no small task to get to the heart and the summary of this crazy thing we call Christianity in the Bible, but uh, Jesus is going to help us do it. But we should ask God to help us. So let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for this time. We thank you for the privilege it is to gather together. We thank you for heat and uh, a roof, Lord, um, that, that helps us enjoy the turn to fall here in Portland, Lord. Um, we pray that you'd open our eyes and our hearts and our minds, our spirits, to what you have for us in your word this morning, Lord. We want to understand it and not just understand it, get a nice little piece of knowledge, but we want it to penetrate our bodies, our whole selves, Lord, that we might, as Jesus says, love you with everything. We need you to do that, Lord, so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, we've been trucking through the gospel according to Mark for, uh, we're coming up on two years with some breaks, and uh, we're, we're in kind of the back quarter of the book here. In the last three weeks, uh, this is the fourth, we, we've seen Jesus get into these encounters with different religious leaders who've been challenging him from different angles. And it all started because, well, everyone's hated, all the religious leaders have hated Jesus throughout Mark's account. But specifically, a few weeks ago, as we read, Jesus walked into the temple on what we call Holy Week as Christians, the start of the week, and he's turning over tables, he's cleansing the temple, he's judging the temple, he's making a mess of things because he's so heartbroken over what's happening in his temple. And then this starts this, this line of questioning. The first question was from a group of leaders that said, by whose authority are you doing this? You're sort of acting like you own the place, Jesus. <laughs> Funny enough, Funny enough, he claims he does own the place. Then there was a group who came to try, to try to trap Jesus in this sort of political question of what do we do about paying idolatrous taxes to this idol, Caesar, who set himself up over Israel. And Jesus just displayed incredible savvy as he navigated that while challenging everyone's assumptions about what faithfulness looks like in a situation like that. Um, last week, we looked at the question that they brought to him, which was a theological question about what is life like in the resurrection. And the group of Sadducees was just trying to stump him on like, hey, aren't your beliefs kind of nonsensical and weird and silly? And once again, Jesus' brilliance came through. Today, we get the final question. And, and you see at the bottom of the passage, Jesus continues to answer wisely in ways that avoid the traps and the tricks and the ways to try to corner him. And at the end of this, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So that's the end of this little section of Mark that we've got today. But what was the last question? Well, it's from this group called the scribes. These were the expert teachers. They had the training, the study, the head knowledge to understand Israel's law and to, and to deliver it, to interpret it to the people. 
um, there was a lot of overlap between this group and the Pharisees that we've met before. Um, and so these were, the, these were the experts in the law. They were religious experts and specifically experts in the Jewish law. And, and they ask him, this is the first group that the way Mark records it, seems to have a sincere question. Everyone else has been trying to trick and trap Jesus, confront him, challenge him. But this, this group, look, they heard. They heard the people disputing with one another, and they, they were seeing that Jesus answered them well. So the way Mark presents this, it seems like these are all kind of like same afternoon. It's all kind of happening at the same time. So this group is like, man, this Jesus guy, is, he's got something. And so they come, and it seems like it's a genuine question. There's no ulterior motive here. They just really want to know. And their question, their question is the question of questions. What they're asking him, the language is this, which commandment is the most important of all? Which one is the most important of all? Because there's a lot of commandments in the Hebrew Bible. There are a lot of commandments. This was a live question at the time. The standard rabbinic sort of categorization of the Old Testament saw that there were 613 commands in the Old Testament. 613. 248 that were positive, do this. Two, or 365 that were negative, don't do this. 613 total. And there was a system developing where some were considered lighter, maybe less important. Some were considered heavier, maybe more important, or at least more central. And it makes intuitive sense. Like if you take the whole Bible... Like, if, if, if some of you are holding a paper Bible in your hand, like, look, just flip through how many words are in this thing. That's just the Old Testament. You take, take the New Testament as well. Like, there is so much in this. It is only logical to want to go, okay, what is, like, the organizing principle that will let me take all of this stuff that I can't possibly keep in my mind at once and sort of boil it down to the essentials that will help me sort of make sense of everything? So it's a good question to ask. Maybe you've asked this question. Um, it was no less, there was no less an urgent need for that in their day. In fact, in fact, for example, there was this renowned rabbi Hillel who just, who was teaching just a couple of, of decades before Jesus. And he, he was asked this question. How do you summarize the law, the whole law? And here's what Hillel said. This rabbi said, what you yourself hate, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. What do we think? That's pretty good. Yeah, not bad. Not bad, Hillel. The question was still alive even after Jesus. Even after Jesus answers this question here, in his day, there were more. Um, commentator James Edwards writes this. He says, a century after Jesus, in AD 135, Rabbi Akiba reduced the Torah to Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said, that's it. That's the center. That's the heart. A century after him, a rabbi quoted Proverbs 3, 6 as the heart of the law. In all your ways, acknowledge God, and he will make your path straight. Later still, in AD 260, Rabbi Simlai quoted uh, Habakkuk 2, 4. The righteous will live by his faith. So everyone's taking their shot. Like, here's what I think the whole thing boils down to. So, Jesus, you're an interesting guy. Making some, making some splashes, some waves, making some provocative claims. There's lots of people that think you're the Messiah. There's lots of people who are claiming you're God. So what do you say, Jesus? How do you answer? Jesus, what is the fundamental commandment in all of the Bible? What is most important? What's the heart and vision for the good life? 
of the righteous life, of the just life, of life lived in harmony with God giving way to eternal life. That's all subtext of what they're asking him here. So I'll say it again. Maybe you're here and you're intrigued by Jesus in some way, but you just haven't made a decision to follow him. Maybe there's things that are off-putting about him or you don't know what it would entail. Um, Maybe you need to be asking this exact question right here and right now. What's the heart of the matter, Jesus? And again, if you've been walking with him for a long time, you should take in what he has to say afresh. So let's look at what he says. Verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important is... Notice that quotation. Jesus is quoting the scriptures here. He's not making something up wholesale. He says, Hear, hear, listen, O Israel. The Lord our God... The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then he goes on. They didn't ask him for the first and the second, but he goes on. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So at first blush, you may go, oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good... It's a good answer. It's a good answer. But it, it's more than that. Um, it, it, it's actually less surprising even than, than maybe some of us might assume. His words here start with a common prayer that Israel had, had used throughout much of its history called the Shema, which is just the Hebrew word for hear or listen. Shema means hear or listen. The Jewish Shema was made up of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, uh, which is there, and we don't have these other two. Started with those, those verses, 6, 4 through 9, then Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21, and then Numbers 15, 23 through 31. They took these important passages and they mashed them together into this prayer that over time became like the morning and evening prayer of every religious devout Jew. So these words that Jesus starts with were, were the opening words of the Shema prayer that every single person would start and end their day with. What's interesting about that, what's interesting about that is that Jesus very likely would have started and ended his day with this prayer. Jesus, being a very, very devout Jew himself, it's very likely that when Jesus, from the time he was a child, rose in the morning, he recited the the Shema. And before he finally drifted off to sleep at night, he would have recited the Shema as a prayer to God and as a reminder of kind of the manifesto of what he had been called to as a follower of God, as a faithful member of Israel. Um, yeah. Because they really wanted to hear. They wanted to honor this, to hear Israel. They, they made sure that they reminded themselves of it day in and day out, to start and to end their days. Um, in the words of someone you might know, Hebrew Bible scholar Tim Mackey says this, the Shema functioned both as the Jewish pledge of allegiance and as a hymn of praise. It was the closest thing that ancient Israel had to a creed. A summary statement of this is what we believe most fundamentally. One scholar said that the Shema functioned for the Israelites what uh, the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed serves for Christians today. These things that we continually, even here in our gatherings, there's a reason we recite the Lord's Prayer every week. It's just so foundational to what it means to 
to approach God, to acknowledge our relationship with him. This was that for ancient Israel. So imagine Jesus waking up every morning reciting this to his father, every night before going to bed reciting this to his father and being formed by that over years and years and years and years of doing it. So when the moment comes, after these years of formation, of of reminding himself of this, of crying out to God with this, in good times and bad, day in and day out, when the question comes, what is most important, Jesus is ready to answer. Of course, we could also say he's uniquely the son of God, et cetera. He's going to have a good answer no matter what. But don't miss this. Don't miss what Jesus is a part of here, the tradition he's a part of here. So he answers. And what he does when his answer, he doesn't quote the whole Shema. He, he starts with this, the first uh, two verses of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And he adds a, he adds a phrase. He adds, he adds mind. He's got the authority to do that. We'll let it slide. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus can tweak it. So he adds a phrase. But, but listen, listen on. This, this would have been a part of the original Shema. And I'm sure when Jesus quotes this, he's, he's got all this right freshly on his mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Hear, hear, listen, listen. Do whatever it takes to listen to these words. Jesus did. He did. And what's the content? What's the content of this? It's to listen, to hear. Not in a way to just hear the sound waves bouncing off of whatever it is, whatever the interior part of your ear is that receives and translates that to your brain. It's not just acknowledge the noise that gets produced when someone reads these to you. It's to receive them wholeheartedly. And he spells that out for us as he goes on. But to hear that the Lord our God, Yahweh, the one true God, our God, the Lord is one, which there's debate over what what that phrase, the Lord is one, means, but I think the most popular, most common, probably best, is that he is God alone. There is one God worthy of our praise and our devotion and our worship, our followership, our discipleship. You use whatever words you want. This God, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, he is one. He stands alone. So, so the Shema starts with a challenge to any idol that would start to compete to crowd out your affection for anything else. He says, no, this God alone. Then he really spells this out. You will love him, love the Lord your God with everything you have. You can kind of get overly pedantic by dividing this up. Okay, how does the heart distinguish from the soul, distinguish from all of your might or your strength? That's not the point. The point is, every single faculty you have is laid at the feet of this God. Your love, any way it could possibly be expressed, is taken up in worship and devotion towards this God. There is no part of you that would be walled off from him, no part of you that would be kept aside, no part of you that would be compartmentalized, saved for some other him alone, he gets it all. 
all of your love. Jesus says, this is the first, the greatest commandment in all of the Bible. But he adds to it. He says, you weren't asking about a second, but let me give you a second. And he quotes from Leviticus 19, which is actually, I know Leviticus is far from the, the sexiest book in the Bible. There are some pretty sexy books in the Bible, but Leviticus 19 is, is not one of them. Um, Leviticus 19 is a beautiful chapter about just how Israel is supposed to treat one another, and it culminates here in these verses. Says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the son of, our, of your own people. And then the yellow is what Jesus quotes. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And note, and just remember, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Command, command, command. And remember, I am the Lord. Jesus says that's number two, which really can't be separated from number one. He's, you can imagine Jesus' responses. Here's the greatest commandment, and the second that's like it is really part of it. It flows out. It's the natural entailment of the first. So, what is the greatest commandment? If we, if we were to just speak simply and crudely, we would say this. Love God with everything and love people as yourself. Love God with everything and love people as yourself. These two cannot be separated. Love God and love people. Go back to the main, or the next slide, I suppose. So Jesus says there is no other commandment greater than these. In the parallel passages in the other gospels, Jesus says something like everything about the law and the prophets is summarized in this. It all hangs on this command, these two commands. This is the heart of everything. One interesting thing about this, I would just say, because there's, there's so many laws, especially in the Old Testament, and we can, we can of course say, like, our relationship to the Old Testament laws have fundamentally shifted this side of, of the cross. We're not under the Old Covenant, we're under the New Covenant. Plenty of that is, in many ways, not applicable to us today, so I'm, I, I trust most of you understand that and, and have categories for that. Um, but nonetheless, nonetheless, there are things we encounter when we read, especially in the Old Testament, but certainly the Old, New Testament as well. Biblical laws can be really frightening to us, can't they? So many times you read it and you're like, whoa, what is that? What in the world is that? We had one of those last week about the, the leveret marriage, the brother-in-law marriage thing, where it's just like, what in the world? How is this good? How is this just? How is this right? And you're going to come across that, and the worst thing you can do is to just try to tamp it down and say, oh, I'm not going to let myself worry about that. I'm not going to let myself explore that. Let's just move on. Explore it. Get into it. Here's, here's, here's where I'm going with this, though. If, if what Jesus is saying is true, that all of the law and the prophets hang on what Jesus is saying right here from, from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus. As you're wrestling with a troubling law, if you have not wrestled and really tried to think through how this law might contribute to the love of God and the love of neighbor, you have not thought deeply enough about it yet. 
So that's just, a, that's just a challenge to you. I'm not saying that's always easy to find the way that it is, but if Jesus is telling the truth, and I submit to you that he is, then every time you're disturbed or thrown off or like, what in the world is this? And that happens to me a lot. The best thing you can do is start interrogating it through this lens. What does this have to do with preserving my heart to love God over against any competitor? And what does this have to do with loving those who are around me, who are made in God's image? If you haven't even, if you haven't wrestled through like trying to answer that question, you have not thought deeply enough yet. And I'd say, do it, keep going, keep working. You'll be surprised what you find. And do it in community, not by yourself. But more than that, what Jesus is saying here is that if you want the heart of Christianity, if you want the heart of this Jesus movement, this kingdom of God community that Jesus is building, this is it. This is the center of a life with Jesus as his disciple. And I think you know, taking the advice of, of Moses and Deuteronomy would be very good. Write it down. Write it on your doorpost. Put it in your car. Make it the screensaver of your computer or whatever. Make it your phone back. Like, like do all of this because this is the heart of what we're doing, friends. And if you ever start to lose your way and get confused about what am I supposed to do here and there, reminding yourself day in, morning and evening, middle, everything, reminding yourself, this is what we're commanded to do, to love our God, our God alone with everything we have, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That is it. This is Christianity. This is Christianity. And I know at this point, like in human history, in, (laughs) in the United States, this isn't that crazy. I mean, maybe people would be like, oh, one God, I, I, push, I push back against that. There are many gods or whatever. Um, certainly people would take issue with that. Um, but this idea of like loving neighbor as yourself, I just want to say like, don't take that for granted. In fact, that book we're going to be doing, Josh will mention it at announcements as our churchwide book club. It really makes this point clear. Like this is pretty novel in all of human history. Did you know that Very few religions, their fundamental principle is to outwardly, self-sacrificially love both God and neighbor. It's far more common to find religions that are about the heart of the matter. The central thing is about fear, about submission. Take worldviews where really the heart of the matter is about getting what you want. Or about personal enrichment and personal enlightenment. Becoming a spiritually sophisticated person. It's about moral purity. And maybe there are pieces of each of those things that Christianity would make space for. Yes, certainly. But the heart. I, I, I'm frankly not aware of any other popular worldview, philosophy, religion that says this. If you boil it down, if you reduce it, you know, like you're simmering in a pot, you've got something, you're, you're, you're doing a reduction, you're getting it down to the core essence, is to pour yourself out for your God and for the people sitting next to you. This is beautiful, friends. If only, like, everyone would follow Jesus down this road, how would this world be a different place?
God and love people. Now, the question is this. Those of you that are Christians in this room, you've self-consciously made a decision to follow Jesus, you've trusted him, you're, you're, you're making an effort to, to walk as his disciple over the long road. Um, how you doing on this? How you doing on loving this God, this God alone, with everything that you have? Set that one down. How you doing with loving your neighbor? How you doing with loving your neighbor who doesn't look like you, who doesn't think like you, who doesn't act like you, who, who, who lives and thinks and acts in ways that you find offensive, ugly, repulsive, maybe even have biblical reasons for thinking those things? How you doing? How you doing? See, it's very easy to, to come to this passage or any passage like it and for your initial reaction not to be the beauty and the glory and the gravitas and the innovation and the wondrous like reality and oh, what if everyone just lived this way? The beauty of this, but to just come to it and feel a crushing weight on your back. Well, well crap, I don't do that. That's not me. That's not me. To which I would say, this is part of a, a big Bible, friends, once again. And one of the things that the, that the Bible affirms over and over and over is that many, many, if not all of our deepest loves, probably not all, but many of our deepest loves are, are responsive to prior loves. And one of the things that's cool once you start understanding like the Bible and how it was composed and who wrote what and when and why and how, you start seeing these connections. Early on, actually the very first thing we did as a church community in the COVID era when we were doing video sermons and stuff was we worked through the, the book of 1 John, which was one of John's letters. John, the disciple of Jesus, one of his inner core people who walked with Jesus, who was, gosh, he was at the Mount of Transfiguration. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was probably standing right here when these scribes came to challenge Jesus. That John, years later, decades later, He's a mature, old, gray-haired, maybe bald. Maybe bald. That would bring me some peace. <laughs> Wise sage, one of the, the core disciples, a revered pillar, one of the early fathers of this Christian movement, decades after Jesus had ascended to the Father. He wrote letters. He wrote letters to churches. He said, I have some things to teach you. And so you, you, today we pick our Bible, we turn to 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, you're like, oh, who's this John guy, whatever. You're like, no, no, no. This was one of Jesus' best friends who's now had decades to reflect on these things that Jesus was teaching, to, to mature, to, to, to see all the amazing things that happened after this moment, like the crucifixion, but then the resurrection, the Jesus appearing to them and eating with them and hanging out with them, encouraging them, and then seeing him ascend up to heaven, knowing that he's at the right hand of the Father, seeing him send the Holy Spirit to radically change everything, seeing the tongues of fire on people's heads, seeing people speaking in tongues and talking languages no one can understand, seeing people raised from the dead and healed and all this crazy stuff. And he gets older, and he gets older, and he keeps thinking, and he keeps following Jesus, and he keeps coming back to these scriptures, and he keeps praying. Maybe he recites the Shema twice a day, and he writes a letter. 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 21 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, 
For love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Listen to this, everybody. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, he calls them beloved because he knows they are loved and he loves them. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we've seen him and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. But there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Do you see that? That's one of those things. You're going to do your morning devotional. You're going to read 1 John. You're going to go, oh, that's nice. But no, that is John. That is John who was there reflecting over a lifetime over what is the heart of of the matter and he's taking this teaching he's taking the reality of the spirit that's come and he's taking all these you're probably picking up little nuggets of Jesus teachings in that that John is weaving together and he's trying to help these younger believers follow Jesus still and he lays it out for us he says it's all about love God is love so love God you how could you claim to be a follower of him if you have no love in you either for him or for your neighbor but listen to this it's not that you love God fundamentally it's that God has first loved you And how do we know? Because he sent his son to die in your place to take everything necessary upon himself that you might receive his righteousness, full forgiveness. So lest this become, like there's a challenge here, friends, where where we lack in love, may we confess, may we repent, may we seek to change for the good of the people sitting next to you, for your children, for your friends, for your family, for the neighbors, for the people you haven't even met yet, may you allow him to form and shape you into someone new. Absolutely. There's a place, an important place for that, but fundamentally, John gets us there. He says, look, fundamentally, any of this, it's all in response to this God who has first loved you. And it doesn't matter who you are in this room. 
Doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter what you're mired in right now, doesn't matter what, honestly, you think about Jesus right now. He has still demonstrated his love for you by dying for you. It's a gift sitting there just waiting for you to take it, to experience it, to taste it. So that's Jesus' response. And that's John's reflection on it years later. I wanted you to see how the story ends. So the scribe says to him, he says, you're right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This guy gets it. And he's not saying the sacrifices and burnt offerings that that are commanded aren't important. He's just saying, this is the heart of the thing. This is the heart of the thing. You've nailed it, Jesus. So this is the first of these people who's just like, okay, Jesus, great answer. This This is interesting. This is exciting. But notice something. Notice that he's judging Jesus. You see that? So Jesus, or or I'm sorry, the scribe is evaluating Jesus. He he assumes this position that says, you're right. He's going to pronounce judgment on whether or not Jesus answers correctly. And he says, you've answered correctly. Because this man, again, he's an expert in all things law. He's got the training. He's got the credentials. He's a teacher. Probably got a, a lifetime of faithful ministry in this way. I judge you correct. He judges the judge. And then, the tables are turned. Look at verse 34. Jesus saw that this man answered wisely. Oh, you're not judging me. I'm judging you. (laughs) Jesus saw that this man answered, like this man accepts what Jesus has to say and Jesus sees, oh, this is a good, this, this guy is responding to me well. And he says to the man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, that's an interesting loaded sentence right there. You are not far from the kingdom of God. It includes at least three things. The first is an affirmation. Jesus affirms he's close to receiving the kingdom. Remember, the kingdom of God is what Jesus came to bring. The start of the Gospel of Mark is about Jesus going out and preaching the kingdom. We can assume anytime he talks about Jesus teaching, he's talking about the kingdom. And and, and yes, his, his, his sacrificial death is all wrapped up. That's the invitation into the kingdom. That's how you come in. It's through Jesus, his work on the cross. But the kingdom was the thing that Jesus was continually teaching. And he says, hey, good news. You're close. You're close. That's an affirmation. You're close to the very thing that Jesus came to bring. But that's not all there is in that statement. There's also this, a critique Jesus critiques that the man is not yet in the kingdom. Close is not the same thing as arrival or participation. Jesus is lovingly telling this man he still has a way to go in the very same breath. You are close, but you're not there. You are close, but you're not there. And implicit in this is a third thing, I believe. I think it's always there. Implicit in this statement, you are close, but not quite is an invitation for this man to trust and follow Jesus. 
Jesus is, he claims, the Messiah King who presides over the kingdom of God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He claims no one comes to the Father but through him. So this man can stand apart from Jesus and, and, and judge, even judge favorably Jesus' ethics and his summary of the Hebrew Bible and all these things. But even if they agree that this is the thing we ought to do, it doesn't matter until this man comes to Jesus and trusts him and follows him. For the very same reason John highlighted, if this man is content to say, yes, I'll try it, he's going to fail. The same way I fail every day, the same way you fail every day, to love God with everything and love our neighbors as ourselves. And because we're going to fail, Jesus died. (laughs) He died on the cross for us. And he says, just come to me, trust me. Accept my work on your behalf. I have loved God with everything, and I have loved my neighbor as myself. Anyone want to dispute that? So it's not enough to say, yes, Jesus, I like your teaching. You've spoken well. You have to throw yourself at his feet and say, save me. What you have accomplished, I want that for me. And from that place, then... Empowered by his Holy Spirit, secure in the, in the unbreakable love and grace that he has for you, where he says, No one can ever snatch you out of your Father's hand. Then you can start to fight to love this God in response and to love your neighbor in response. And over time, friends, over time, friends, you just might do it. <laughs> Empowered by him. So maybe, again, you're hearing this today and you're intrigued. Jesus' vision for the heart of the law, the meaning of life, the key to spiritual maturity, it's resonating with you. That's fascinating. That's interesting. But you haven't yet taken the plunge to give yourself to him. Maybe you're sitting in the same seat as the scribe going, I like that. I like that. That seems right. That's good. That's a good teaching. Maybe you're sitting in judgment over Jesus. You need to know, (laughs) in reality, we are not, none of us get to evaluate Jesus. If what the Bible says is true, then he is evaluating all of us. And the terror of it is that we all come up short, and the glory of it is that he doesn't care. He loves you anyway. And he has closed that gap by dying on the cross. And the question is, will you receive it? And if you have received it, Today, will you just celebrate and thank him? As we have time for worship together, will you just let your heart be given over in love to this God who, who is this way and who has done all this for you? And to let this just renew your, your, your desire and your passion, your, your loving affection for him. Amen? Okay. Let's pray.